Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This week's one-on-one Cloud 2030 guest is Leon Cooperman. He is the co-founder and CTO of Cast AI, um, and we have a great discussion very centered on adding AI analytics to Kubernetes cluster management. Um, he knows a ton about Kubernetes, a ton about AI and, and the benefits, uh, and it provides really significant value. This is a clip from our follow-up discussion uh, where he explains the value of Cast AI to customers. Take a listen. Yeah, the, like there's five core things that we do. We, we choose the right instance types, we auto scale for them using horizontal pod auto scaling, like a good version of it. We use spot instances where we can by predicting. Um, we tap into reserve prices when it's appropriate, like if already customers are under contract. We don't like it, but we do it if they need us to. And then we do this thing called vertical pod auto scaling, which is automatically setting the request attributes of every pod for memory CPU. So that they get, they're not asking for too much resource or too little resource dynamically. Wow, this technology is really powerful, um, and it makes a difference. We're going to go through and talk about how they do it, why they do it, um, and other issues around the Kubernetes community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what Leon has to say. Leon, welcome to the Cloud 2030 podcast. We are very happy to have you here. Can you give us a little bit about your background and, and what you do? Hey, Rob. Thank you very much. Super excited to chat with you. Um, so, yeah, my background is uh, computer science from many, many years ago. I, I kind of started my working career at IBM uh, here in Toronto at the lab, actually before I graduated university, and uh, uh, very quickly... Uh, you know, fell in love with software engineering, um, early developer on WebSphere, the, the IBM WebSphere product back then, it was called something different. Um, so, and then all, uh, that was kind of the last real job that I had. Rob. So after that, it's been startups all along uh, up until where we are here at Cash AI. Um, just recently in the last 10 years, I've done a, a big pivot into cybersecurity out of necessity. Um, and that's where the focus of my last couple of startups have been. Um, and Cast AI is kind of unique in the perspective that it's an infrastructure or IaaS focused company. Uh, so it's another kind of change in direction, but one that we're obviously very comfortable and familiar with. So one of the things interesting with Cast AI, uh, I'm thinking AI and infrastructure together. How do you blend to, you know those two components? So there, when you're when you're as a DevOps engineer, as you're as you're running your infrastructure, you're making a lot of decisions on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes those are decisions are semi-automated. Sometimes they are manual. And our goal is to really take the guesswork and the manual effort out of the decision-making process. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, in our in our world, we deal a lot with auto scaling, uh, and so you're probably familiar with all the different types of auto scaling. Uh, uh, capabilities out there. But one of the things that we noticed is just having predictability and seasonality is an awesome way to get in front of auto-scaling decisions. So to the extent that we can have an unsupervised algorithm tell us in advance that, hey, you are going to experience a spike because it's Friday afternoon and this is when you always experience a spike in this region, 
that is very helpful to our algorithms to help prepare infrastructure uh, just in time. So that's kind of one example. And we can go through a few more. I one of the things that you're you're talking about, and to me is a is I call it the AI versus robots problem. Um, so it's you you need analysis and AI to give you predictive capabilities is super helpful, but AI that doesn't have a reliable way to accomplish an action, which to me is the robot, is you know we can we can end up with you know super smart things. A lot of the log analysis and robot process, robotic process automation is like that. It's like, yeah, we're going to tell you this thing's going wrong. Nobody trusts the AI to click the button. Or if the, the button is there, it's not shaped in a way that the AI can push it. Um, how do you connect the analytics into action? So I think that's been the major, actually, you hit it right up. It's been the major disconnect, especially like when you look at cost as a problem. So infrastructure cost as a problem. What have you gotten in previous lifetimes? So you've gotten a report that tells you, hey, these are the 20 things that you should do to improve the cost of your infrastructure. Maybe the CFO or VP of finance gets that report, but nobody's going to take those actions because they're not automated. It's a risk. You've already tuned the system. So like the risk reward taking those uh, recommendations is, is extremely risky, in other words. And it's, and it's likely going to take a major push uh, to make a financial change versus the approach that we're taking is, well, what if all of those actions were small actions, right? So just like if you look at coding, you know, when you have to release things on a early basis, monthly basis, weekly basis, those were all riskier than releasing things on a daily basis or on a pull request basis. So if you make, if you think about infrastructure in the same way, if you make small changes to your infrastructure where you can roll back if there's impact, then every single micro change is a low risk change. And if you're constantly making those and the system is set up to be fully automated in that regard, then the overall risk to the environment is way lower. I, the incremental change makes a ton of sense to me. I guess, how do you then back? Cause does that mean you have to have your own infrastructure automation toolkits? How do you, how do you decompose infrastructure changes into smaller units? Yeah, so that's why when we started CAST, we absolutely chose Kubernetes as a underlying uh, network or computer mesh, right? So here's a group of computers that represents the abstraction of the infrastructure to the application. There are rules of engagement. There, you know, it's it's all very it's like a game of chess, right? Like so, your application behaves a certain way, your infrastructure behaves a certain way, and Kubernetes governs that. And so if we just had to go out into the Wild West and say, oh, we're going to try to do this for any application framework in any virtual machine or bare metal machine environment, it would be very difficult. Um, and we chose a very specific application Kubernetes in that we believe that the world is eventually going to get there. If you fast forward 10 years from now, there will be some type of current container orchestration platform that most folks are running. It may not be Kubernetes, but it'll be something like it. And so... By placing our bet on that future, uh, we're able to make a lot of assumptions around infrastructure and then use those rules of engagement to our benefit to automate. Does that make sense, Rob? Makes a ton of sense to me. Um, and I think the Kubernetes bet has been a pretty reasonable bet from that perspective, but especially when you describe it as looking for a control plane that lets you make incremental changes against a broader system. I, I think that those two things make a lot of sense. The, the challenge of 
you know, like from, from our world, making a change to infrastructure usually ties into a lot of attack surface. So, you know, it's very hard to have a good click a button and have things happen out of it. Um, and having an AI drive, that would be hard. Can you give an example of what would be an ideal sort of surface level for you, for, for you to analyze and then take action against? Yeah, absolutely. So um, and I'll give you the kind of assumption that Kubernetes allows us to make so, so that, that it kind of ties it all together. So when you deploy a container or a pod in the case, any kind of workload, you specify a parameter uh, called a request, and that request is like the number of millicores you want to have available in the in the uh, computer uh, network for that pod to run. And so that request tells the infrastructure, oh, I'm going to need more or I'm going to need less uh, going forward. So we can simply react to uh, I need more or less as a very great automation tool. In fact, it's one of our one of the first policies we wrote. When you run out of space in a cluster, we simply look at your application as it exists today and look at the infrastructure that is available by the cloud provider or cloud providers, and we order it on demand or with the best possible price. So that's just one example of a very simple uh, react and respond that doesn't require a human being. You have unscheduled work. You need to schedule it. You need infrastructure. Um, and that's kind of one path. I'll, I'll give you one more example, um, Rob. So most customers today... Uh, whether they, most customers know about what preemptive or spot instances are. So uh, just very quickly for those, it's the ability to buy infrastructure at an extreme discount with the caveat that you will get that infrastructure taken away from you with two minutes notice on Amazon and under 60 seconds with Google. So highly disruptive, chaos driven approach. So most customers don't take advantage of it because they're not running chaos monkey. They don't know how to react to instances that just disappear applications are fragile. But because we sit in that middle layer and we, we, we're, we're in the control plane, one of the things we can do is, one, catch the preemption notice extremely quickly. So within a couple seconds, we can say, oh, we've got to replace infrastructure that's not going to be there in two minutes, and we're spinning it all up in the background automatically. Now, if you're trying to do that manually, it's extremely difficult to do. And one, you have to have that automation loop. And two, you don't know when it's going to happen. So one of the other pieces that we use machine learning for in this case is we see a lot of interruptions every single day, right? We see customers getting interrupted all the time. So we use those as labels, as supervised machine learning labels. And we look at a whole bunch of other attributes. And we've created a prediction model. So even if we can get 10, 15 minutes of advance notice, we can have infrastructure that's ready to go. And we could even have the node drained by the time the preemption comes in. Oh, that's fantastic. So you would actually be able to learn things across your customer base to make predictive actions for those customers. So one one customer's preemptions actually translate into predictive operations across the board for other customers. Could you do that more, even more broadly? So if there was an outage or traffic congestion or something like that, could you start routing the whole system into other infrastructures? So we do that a little bit differently because it's like sometimes you'll even be in the same region. Customers will be like, it really depends on like what physical VLAN is down, right? So it's hard to make correlations because there's a layer of abstraction that we just don't know about. So we try to handle that problem a different way. And that, so if you're thinking about the multi-cloud scenario or the, the 
the scenario where we have a cluster and two physical clouds running simultaneously, which is, by the way, different than federated computer clusters, right? That's a very, we take a very different approach. Maybe we can talk about that. Um, what we will do is we will sense the downtime from a networking perspective. So your load balancer will stop working or your ingress will stop working. And that will trigger a front-end change to the global load balancer that we provision. And the global load balancer will say, that particular endpoint is no longer healthy. I'm going to stop routing traffic there. And I'm just going to fail over to my other HA node or my other HA cloud. So when we're, when you're, my assumption has been, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that what your each one of your customers is going to have their own cluster, right? Kubernetes isn't multi-tenancy, so you're managing many, many clusters across, you know, your your managed infrastructure setup. Correct. Um, you're monitoring them individually, and then is it is it possible to, you know, each one would, I assume, get their, you really have machine learning for each cluster or for a customer across their fleet of clusters, I guess is the way you would see it. And are there inferences that you get to, you get to also have across? Because I, I can see those benefits for customers quite a bit in your learning yeah. algorithms. Yeah, some of the, it, it really depends on the customer and their level of comfort with data sharing. So we've had this, so this mm -hmm. is kind of like, AI company iteration number three, and the model building is always the trickiest one. As the customer size grow, their insistence on not sharing data uh, grows exponentially. <laughs> of course. So, so yes, we, we do have some models which are trained across customer sets, and then we have some that are very specific. Like, like uh, your traffic is your traffic. There's really no nothing we can benefit by making it a global pool. But preemptions, yeah. as you said, are really uh, customer agnostic if they just happen to anyone. That's a that's makes sense. That's a really powerful story from that perspective. When when but the, what you're describing to me also means that you have to have a degree of control with the Kubernetes cluster and managing the infrastructure on that side. How does right? How do you do? You, does that mean that you also need to be running the clusters, or can you just talk to the providers' clusters and say, "I need more capacity and, and tune things around"? Yeah, it depends on the. So we have kind of two levels of, of product offerings. The first one is an HA cluster that spans multiple clouds. If that's what the customer is looking for, we can't use a GKE or EKS. The, the networking topology is simply not there to bringing multiple clusters together. So what we do is we install the control plane in the customer's account in, in their using their cloud credentials. We spin up VMs that represent the control plane for Kubernetes. And that control plane is often distributed across multiple clouds and they talk to each other for consensus. We, and k was set up to do that. Like it was set up to have uh, a distribution uh, and high availability of control plane. So that's great. Right. If the customer wants to use an existing managed service uh, um, uh, K8 version, we install an agent as a daemon set in their cluster. And then that's a read-only agent. So we can go and glean all of the data we need to in order to make optimizations. It's not going to be an HA solution from the perspective of multi-cloud, but it will give you all of the cost optimization benefits that we're working on. Um, so step one is to install the agent glean the data, and then if you want us to take action on those things automatically, then you give us your cloud credentials so we can spin up VMs and do all of that good stuff. 
Oh, that makes sense. So you do have a, an engagement for you would have a two-phase commit. So you can go through, scan the data, say, hey, it looks like you know we could actually help you prevent outages, skinny your clusters, expand them. And then and then back to the AI versus robots problem, you, you can bring the robots in after the fact. After the fact, from yeah. From that perspective. Okay. Yeah. And do you, so I'm always curious about commercial models from a sense like that. Do you, is that a good cost differentiation point for you? Or how do you then map, you know, the analysis and the robotics pieces into making it a product? So whenever anyone installs that read-only agent, that's just like, gold mine for us because we learn so much from every environment so our general go-to market strategy is if you want to see the recommendations there's no cost to that install them install the agent uh, run it for free like it doesn't matter right because the impetus will be oh i really want this let me go turn it on and i'm willing to pay for I'm, i'm willing to pay for the savings that makes a lot of sense this is this is one of the things about um, AI companies that that I always admire, right? Is that you have the value of you ingesting data as somebody during a trial, um, or as part of a, a sample. Even if you share that, you're still gaining information from them. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And and do you you're you're in the Kubernetes community? How does you know? Do you did you are you running as a, a project in the Kubernetes community? How how do you interact with that that uh, ecosystem? Yeah, there's a great uh, great question. So we're uh, CNF uh, certified solution. I think that just happened a couple months ago. We're a fairly young company, right? So there's the one aspect of all of our engineers or most of our engineers are Kubernetes certified administrators. Um, they're, you know, we, we heavily participate in the ecosystem. We uh, participate in the meetups. We also participate in open source projects where we commit to some of those projects. Um, there's a few that we're extremely interested in. We we, we commit more often, but in general, okay. our our philosophy is to commit back to the projects that we use. That's kind of step one. And then anything that gets installed in the client cluster, so like our read-only agent, that will be open source. Our, our philosophy is we don't want you to install anything that you don't know where you don't know what it does necessarily. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's it's an interesting ecosystem to be a part of. Um, I, I was involved early, and then then we pulled back. Um, uh, that's a that's a that's a beers conversation in itself. But I'm interested in your take. How do people navigate? Right, you're a vendor in this space. You're not you're not coming in as um, somebody who's you know basically trying to give away a project and have the project come into CNCF. How does that that space look as as somebody participating? How do you navigate the, the, the Kubernetes CNCF ecosystem? Um, so it's been pretty, like, it's been pretty uh, receptive and friendly uh, for us so far. I, okay. There isn't that tension of it's got to be open source or we don't want it, like, from, from the community. In other words, both bottom-up and top-down enterprises who need to save money and do the optimizations we're proposing – are willing to pay yeah. for a commercial ser- solution on top of open source. And that's a pretty well-established pattern. I mean, you look at Elasticsearch as an example. Um, you look at even in the Kubernetes space, Casting is a good example. Their technology is based on open source, right? They do an amazing job packaging it to create a commercial version that provides a very valuable backup service to their customers. And do you find that the 
like there's a distro because what I agree with you uh, strongly. I, one of the things I like about the Kubernetes community, as opposed to other open source I've been involved in, is that they're not they're not shy about there being commercial vendors in the mix, making offering offering the product. Um, one of the challenges can be you end up with a ton of different distributions, and we we definitely have seen this in Kubernetes. There's a lot of distributions. As somebody who's dependent on those distributions having a degree of consistency, how do you navigate that part of the market, right? When does that you know does that make sense? If it, do you you're like ah oh, it's a Red Hat installation with OpenShift, it's I'm, I'm going to have trouble. It's EKS, it's going to be different than GKS, which is different than Azure. Or has that started to get homogenized more? So the three cloud providers do a fairly good job of using vanilla uh, K8s. Okay. We don't run our agent yet on an OpenShift or uh, we, our solution does. We've tested it with Rancher. That works really well as an example. But one okay. of the things that we were very uh, passionate about up front is, is that, so there's a conformancy test for Kubernetes, right? Like you run it you take your distro and you run it against the conformancy test and it has to pass every release. So we, the right. baseline in uh, control plane is a hundred percent vanilla Kubernetes. We don't make any modifications to it uh, unless we're committing upstream to the, the main branch. Well, that makes sense. That's cool. That the, the, and one of the reasons this is an important question to me um, and longtime listeners will know this, right? We've, the Kubernetes ecosystem providing a software market, which is to me what you're demonstrating, is an important milestone that that I keep hoping will show up and has sort of been, in my opinion, slow to emerge. Um, right. So if you're saying, hey, I can go to any of the major cloud providers and, you know, be confident that my product will work, even though they're, they're three different three different Kubernetes platforms, then we've created a software ecosystem. So, uh, that's kind of emerging with uh, with Helm charts. Like, so Helm has is the package manager for Kate, and it's gone through a number of uh, iterations. But we're yeah. really seeing good conformancy in terms of. I, I see a world where you have a K8 um, uh, platform, and then you can actually choose from open source charts or commercial charts. Like, same same as the open source chart, but you will get commercial support for that chart and install. And that support may come from uh, an hourly base or a monthly, like whatever the commercial that the vendor wants to do, but they will be there to support the install inside of your cluster. And there's been a couple good examples of that that have emerged already. Anyone that strikes you as, as us? So, so as an example, like if you, there's a, a software vendor called Galera. They, they, they have built a product mm -hmm. called the Galera cluster. For MySQL my based clustering, yeah. MySQL, I think they already also have a Postgres clustering uh, tool. Right, it's been right. a while since I looked at them. And so they're. We, we, we actually have had, had uh, I'd have to, I, I can't remember offhand, but we did have uh, some Clara people on the show 18 months ago, I think now. So it's always worth a check in. Side note uh, the show that I'm mentioning here is with Peter Zatsev from Percona. It was recorded in. November of 2020. So really good show. Talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Great product. And, and, the, um, and the, the, the commercial model there is use the open source piece. If you want support, it's X. And it's the same exact thing. It's not a feature creep, but you will, you will get uh, next day or whatever it is, five-hour support. And it's a very reasonable cost relative to, I think, the number of 
cores or number of servers that you're running. So they might need to do some tweaking on the pricing model, like to adopt a Kubernetes type usage patterns, but that's the basic uh, bones are there. I, I will also tell you a, a lot of vendors are building Kubernetes operators for their for their products, so they become native Kubernetes enabled. There's another database company that we just recently talked to, SillaDB. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if you know who they are. Uh, small startup. There, they have a great um, they have a great uh, uh, data store for. Uh, it has a bunch of flavors. One of them is Cassandra, but one of them is a completely compatible DynamoDB API. So, like, if you are stuck in Amazon and you're using DynamoDB and you need to port it wherever, SillaDB has uh, an amazing, and it actually has a very good t- total cost of ownership. So, w- what we found with those guys is they built a native Kubernetes operator so that SillaDB works really seamlessly inside of as a cluster service. As opposed, as opposed to a storage service that sits outside the cluster. Uh, that's an interesting. That's an interesting model. It's a good use case for the operator pattern from a consumption a consumption perspective. Absolutely interesting. That's good to see. I, it's one of the things I've, I find as a you know once removed observer now is that you know you watch the CNCF landscape and all the projects and it, it feels like there's a lot of moving parts in Kubernetes. Um, to make things work. And that can be great if there's an ecosystem. It can be really confusing if you show up and, and you know, the, it's a bare bones system with a whole bunch of missing pieces and then you have to go to a menu to figure out how to complete it. And so um, it's always yeah. it's always good to talk to people in the mix to fig- help figure that out. And, and that's one of the things that kind of struck me when I started this journey a couple of years ago. I was like, this is very difficult to figure out. So yeah. I took the position of, I want to be super opinionated. I, I don't think most people need all that choice. It's okay to have choice, but let's start with an opinion. So let's start with a preferred network stack. Let's start with a preferred storage driver. Like there's just a bunch of things that we can do up front to give customers a leg up. So I'll give you an example. Um, when you install a cast cluster today, uh, automatically out of the box, Prometheus is installed inside of the cluster. With the storage provision, Grafana is installed inside the cluster. You can remove those things, but more than likely, your DevOps team is going to need those components. They also provide an option for you to install the Elk stack for logging, so you don't have to figure out distribute, and you don't have to push it to Stack Driver or CloudWatch, which costs a nominal leg. You can easily do that observability in stack in, in cluster. And then just recently, right. customers have been asking us for Loki as an alternative to Elastic, and so we've built that in as an add-on as well. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And then do you get to build profiles to help manage those those services? Like, would that be part of what you know, you'd be able to do is say, oh, I, I, you've got these services we installed. We're actually able to tell you that they're healthy. Like, how, how does, is that, is that where the, the service ends up adding additional value? Yeah, there's, so it does monitor all of those uh, components. Um, and we will do more of the validation. So yes, there is a health, there is a health beat monitor. Like for example, there's a right. Prometheus health, uh, heartbeat that, that we report on. And it's a metric that we report on as well to make sure that, uh, that, cause that Prometheus server is kind of the heart of our solution. Like we need the time series data in order to work effectively. Uh, so okay. there are certain that things that are become the underpinning of the solution. Um, 
then there are others that are a little bit more peripheral, which we will do uh, an increasingly uh, in, introspect those services in more detail over time. So this is kind of the marketplace vision that we're building, which is starts with those add-ons. What are the things that you want to add on? They're all based on Helm, so there's no proprietary. And then once you've mm-hmm. added those things to your system, uh, are there any vulnerabilities that have crept in that need to be patched? Uh, are there compatibilities uh, okay. between uh, between Helm charts? If you upgrade one, what is the cascading effect? So it's all of the things that a, a package manager should do a good job at. We're trying to wrap that into an easy-to-consume interface. That's that's fascinating. And this is something I hadn't thought through when you were explaining it beforehand, which is, you know, there there are services that are going to work really well from an AI overlay, right? And you were saying security, conformance, checking. Um, some of that become, starts to drift towards policy. Uh, what I've seen people talk about is policy as code or policy enforcement. Some of it is is monitoring. How do you choose in that spectrum, you know, I'm assuming you're not trying to become a monitoring tool. That's that's a, a different thing. But you do have to be aware of the heartbeats and, and the infrastructure that's that's running it. So from a policy perspective, there, uh, Kubernetes has a open source project that's gaining a lot of steam called OPA or Open Policy Engine, Open mm-hmm. Policy Agent. Sorry, rather, um, OPA the the domain specific language is a little bit quirky, but I think people are getting used to it and, and it's, it's, it's adoption is increasing. The value comes in OPA is when there are pre-written pre-can policies that you can kind of get out of the box, right? So that might be a future direction where we partner with a, a cybersecurity firm or we uh, build some of that ourselves. Uh, our, some of our engine runs based on policies. So customers set policies around cluster limits, like, you know, don't go crazy on the top end, don't shrink it too small. We set yeah. policy around where you can use preemptive instances. We set policy around how aggressive the bin packer can be in terms of emptying nodes. So there, there's a lot of policy that decides what the AI, AI engine can and cannot do. And then separately from that, there are data sources. So, and we need to make sure that those data sources are uh, intact and, and viable. And so that's where we do a lot of our uh, making sure the uptime is there. From a general observability perspective, that's really the customer's choice. If they want to use existing tools like Datadog, like that's all part of the ecosystem, or Datadog right. or any many other uh, suites of tools that are out there. Interesting. So you're very focused on the infrastructure surrounding the cluster, cluster health, capacity, things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then in the case of the multi-cloud cluster. And we can, and if you, if you like Rob, we can kind of uh, talk about the difference between federated and non-federated multi-cloud. Um, the in that multi-cloud cluster, which is non-federated in our case, uh, the uh, network stack is extremely important to us. So we do a lot of monitoring around how the clouds are connected, depending on the solution that the customer chooses. We do a lot of monitoring around uh, uh, consensus in the cluster itself. Um, network is okay. very important to us. That makes sense because that's one of the hardest things to get right in Kubernetes. So if you're if you're going to break it or it's going to get fragile, then you want to be able to take the preemptive action. And that makes a lot of sense. That's fascinating. So when people are building a good Kubernetes application, a Kubernetes infrastructure, what tips would you give them? How would you how would you how would they make your life easier if 
building up a, a system? Yeah, so I think one of the, so thinking about your application in terms of scalable components is, is really important. So what are the things in your system that are elastic versus non-elastic? And then thinking about what scale factor you want to use for the elastic components. I'll give you an example. If you have a microservice like a shopping cart that scales with number of sessions on the front end, um, you want to think about that shopping cart service in terms of how many of these pods do I need to handle X number of sessions, right? Because that's a business metric that we're not quite there to derive automatically yet. And then once you've thought through that, then the scaling of the rest of the system becomes much, much easier. That is really good advice. Yeah. And a benefit of the microservices design that you can enable in the system, right? So design your system in order to have the flexibility and the scale from that perspective. Yeah. The other, if you have a monolithic service yeah. that, that you're trying to just bring to Kubernetes uh, verbatim, it's, you're not going to get a lot of benefit there, right? You're, it's like taking a virtual machine. There's a, a project called VertCube. Um, uh -huh. uh, uh, and moving them into there's not a lot of the, the chunks are too big <laughs> the, the, <laughs> you need to have a I'm glad you brought that one up yeah keep going you need to break down the system into some modern architecture with some reasonable semblance of things that look like microservices in order for you to get the benefit right because if, if ever if you can't kill a pod without bringing down your system it's not a good candidate for Kubernetes uh, that's good advice. It's funny. I was thinking just a, a little while ago, VertCube was, was super exciting um, about three years ago, and everybody was was getting very uh, spun up about about it, about you know virtualization inside of Kubernetes. And I think I'm guilty of a couple of, of breathless posts about how exciting it was going to be, and I, it disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, and I haven't haven't heard anybody mention VertCube. So I'm actually, you're scratching my itch of, of wanting to know where things were with it. I, I only bring it up because a customer asked me about it a couple of days ago. Like, oh, we want to move here, but we have all these legacy apps that we don't have any control of. So how do we get it into the environment? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I've, I've seen virtualization systems try to run bare metal. I've seen virtualization systems try and run containers. And, you know, it's there's different architectural conceits for different things and VMs typically are not particularly portable and they t typically get locked into the hosts that they're running on unless you spend a lot of money for uh, vMotion and, and capabilities like that. Um, and Kubernetes was not designed to think like that. Yeah. Designed to, to tear down a, a machine and bring up something else, which I like. So you're, you're literally using back to our AIs and robots, right? You have a control surface that says I can push a button and destroy a, destroy a node and bring it back. And my system underneath knows how to deal with that. Yeah. So there are core, powerful. Yeah. So there are core APIs to say expand nodes, remove nodes, change. And so one of the things mm -hmm. you'll notice when you spin up a cast cluster, there's no discussion of instance types. Like, do you want an X5 extra large or do you want a C5 4X large? There's no discussion of that. And there's a couple of reasons for that. We don't believe you need to know as an engineer what your instance type should be. The application dictate, dictates what it needs. It might need a GPU. Uh, it might need a, it might need this many cores. It might need this many contiguous cores. 
why should a DevOps engineer have to guess about node pools? So that's kind of misnomer number one. We don't ask you about infrastructure. We need to just infer that when we see the application. That's kind of step one. That's fascinating. So this is a place where it's like, all right, shut up and let the AI drive. Right. If if you if you're in a if you're in a self-driving car, you don't you don't you don't you don't t- try and turn the wheel. You just sit back in the back seat and you let it do its thing, right? Now, on my Tesla, or did I make the not, analogy go too far? Yeah, I, I don't let my Tesla drive. I'm not quite there yet, but it, this is a simple. <laughs> we're trying to solve a simpler problem here. Like inst- <laughs> instant selection is a little bit of a simpler problem than autonomous driving, but. Um, <laughs> much i hope <laughs> but but the but the other piece i will say is the other kind of thing that we go against the green with kubernetes is if you'll notice when you set up an eks cluster or a gka cluster everything is considered as groups so it's an elastic scaling group of the same type of instance and that's a problem for us right because okay you don't need 10 of the same machines maybe you need five of these three of these two of these it's the fill the jar with rock problem, right? You, you put the boulders in first, you put in the right. smaller pebbles, then you put in the sand. We need to have that flexibility. Kubernetes world doesn't think that way. So we've really, we really moved to these, what we call heterogeneous node groups. We'll, we'll put any instance in a group. We don't care. It's very contrary to the way that K8 runs normally today. Oh, that's a really interesting insight. Yeah. And so you can take advantage of the fact that you are planning to cycle the cluster and roll it uh, for the bin packing problem. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you remember That's under the cut, co- yeah, under yeah. the covers, we're packing all of the time. So here's the problem with K8, the way it was developed. It was developed to be fair. We don't need it to be fair. We need it to be unfair. So we've changed the behavior of the scheduler so that it puts all of the work in as few nodes as possible. That allows us to see empty nodes and get rid of them. Now, where there are no empty nodes, but there's a, this defragmentation that needs to occur, if I can just use a hard drive term from 20 years ago, that defragmentation is what our bin packer does. It takes pods where they're kind of one-offs and moves them into a node that is pretty full and gets rid of the empty stuff. Okay. That's fascinating. So, you know, when I had heard about the Kubernetes scheduler back in the very early days, the assumption was that people would replace the scheduler, would, would write a new scheduler. Uh, and experience has been that that's not often easy to do. They end up pretty integrated into the system, but you are, you are informing the scheduler. It's you're, you're, you know, not exactly sidecarring the scheduler, but you're, you're able to work with what Kubernetes has got to give it improved behavior. Like. Yeah, so so with 119, there's a whole bunch of schedule scheduler influencing that you can do. Uh-huh. Can't do it, unfortunately, unless you have control of the control plane nodes themselves. It requires configuration files that go on the control plane. So we couldn't take it. While we could take advantage of it, our own clusters, we didn't want to have one strategy for our own clusters and another strategy for EKS. That would be unfair. So we've, we've created the mechanisms to... Uh, in, not change it or swap out the scheduler um, or influence it, but we uh, you leverage the existing Kubernetes uh, capabilities to force the behavior we want. I, I think that that's a very strong approach. Um, I, you know, my experience has been that the idea that you would swap out the scheduler, um, which is a really core piece of the infrastructure and people depend on 
um, is, is, you know, hopeful, but not that practical. I think your strategy of, of using the knobs you have to make things smarter, typically it's more portable and has better, better longevity. Uh, it makes me think through, there's a classic story in the old Windows days of when they went, I think, from Windows 3 to Windows 95. Wow. Um, okay. 92, yeah, 92 versions all at once. Um, but one of, the, or it was at three to four, it was something, they, they, there was a major jump. They rewrote all the APIs behind the scenes and they, they spent months re-implementing bugs in the new APIs that people had used as workarounds to make sure that things worked. Because like all these game engines and stuff had hacked, you know, performance, but in, you know, into the APIs that were bugs or exploited bugs and they they had to re-implement them so that they wouldn't break their their ecosystem and that to me what you're doing is you're working within the bounds of the ecosystem um and that's that's to be commended i think it's a good strategy yeah and in fact one of the things that we do so we have all of these like pre-flight checks in our code to say hey if we run this strategy what is it going to do to the customer's application so we actually have a version of that scheduler running in our code like a module to basically do a dry run and say okay if we apply these changes what's the end state after the scheduler is done what it's going to do so we we're constantly running those simulations to make sure that we don't get the cluster into a place where it's it's going to be unhealthy wow that's fascinating all right we do need to wrap it up i've been learning a whole bunch this has really been exciting leon thank you um how do people go ahead and try your software or get in touch with you and, and learn more so cast AI, uh, uh, go to the site, uh, hit, them, hit the registration button, you'll start a free trial. Um, and we're right now we're offering customers who want to try multi-cloud clusters. Uh, mm. There's a, a little button on the console saying request my free credentials. We'll actually give you an AWS uh, trial account and a GCP trial account under our, uh, under our organizations. So you can spin up real infrastructure in those clouds to test it out for 48 hours and see how the whole thing works. Wow. Very nice. That sounds great. Yeah. Cool. So, well, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, helping us get way smarter about Kubernetes and, and how to manage and, and control it. So Leon, thank, thank you, you so much. Ralph. Thank you really much. Great questions. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Wow. Thank you for listening to the cloud 2030 podcast. Um, Leon was just a fantastic guest. I love hearing about how the Kubernetes community has really evolved into a real ecosystem where people are solving, you know, material problems around Kubernetes and even more importantly, taking advantage of the consistency of the industry around Kubernetes um, and that it's created a marketplace for it. So it's one of the things I always look for in uh, this type of, of wave going through the industry of, of can we create a marketplace and ecosystem where people depend on core elements of the infrastructure. And, and Kubernetes is uh, starting to cross or has crossed that milestone. If you're interested in having more conversations like this and want to be one-on-one, -on -one, let me know. Um, you can ping me at Zeekle or rob at rackn.com uh, or just come to the Cloud 2030 uh, conversations. We would love to have your thoughts. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building 
software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.